Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In today's video, we're going to be taking a slightly different approach in covering this case. We're going to first take a look at the background and the social environment at the time of this case taking place. Then we'll take a look at the victims, the investigation, and finally, we're going to go through the theories before coming to a conclusion based on the facts. The year 1973 had been a year packed with notable events within the United States. It'd been the year that the infamous Watergate scandal hearings began and were televised the year serial killer Dean Coral was shot and killed in Texas, and the year that The Exorcist movie was released. But among these massive headlines, one could easily have missed the story that dominated the news outlets of Fort Lauderdale and Hollywood, Florida, in July and August of that year. In that short time span, three women would meet their untimely and horrific end, and another would be harassed by a serial killer whose identity eluded the authorities. The killer, dubbed the Gold Sock Killer or the Sock Strangler by the local newspapers, plagued the minds of the local residents. The Gold Sock Killer would predate the much more infamous Flat Tire Murderer, who would become notorious for the murders of over 12 women between 1975 and 1976, which also took place in South Florida, just as the Gold Sock killings would. Some have theorized that the Flat Tire Killer could have been originally inspired by the actions of the Gold Sock Killer, and we'll actually explore this theory later on in this case. And at the time that this case took place, several more infamous and well-known serial killers had also been active. This included Rodney Alcala, or the Dating Game Killer, Samuel Little, Randy Stephen Kraft, or the Scorecard Killer, John Wayne Gacy, and Ted Bundy. This newspaper clipping features Elmer Wayne Henley, who was an accomplice to the Candyman, Dean Coral, who was on the front page of the paper that day. And that article had been on the page opposite the coverage of one of the victims in this case. You can see that the same newspaper ran the stories side by side later in the day too. Due to this high number of publicized serial killers, it was a common fear within the people of the United States, and it was seen almost as a, quote, hot topic. And it was something at the back of the public's conscience, only being pushed harder by the media at the time. And the Gold Sock Killer was no exception. He was active from July to August of 1973, with only three victims that the police have publicly linked to him though there are others that are often attributed to him. In this coverage, we're going to take a look at three of the confirmed victims, one of the suspected victims and another victim that a lot of people suspect had been connected to the Gold Sock Killer. Now, it must be noted that it has been hard to find information on this case outside of the newspaper coverage at the time, so pretty much everything discussed today relies on those sources, which, as I'm sure you know, can be something considered not to be the most reliable. I also took a look at information taken from a book on the case by Michael B. Burns titled The Flat Tire Murders, Unsolved Crimes of a South Florida Serial Killer. And boy, do I have a lot to say about that book. The chapter on the Gold Sock Killer, which is chapter four, is almost in its entirety plagiarized. And not subtly either, like completely blatantly plagiarized. 
nearly word for word copying and pasting occurs throughout the whole chapter, like this extract on the screen now. The left screenshot is from a newspaper at the time, and the right screenshot is from the book. The plagiarism is bad, and I must warn you now that due to this lack of primary information, you must take a lot of the information presented today with a pinch of salt, or several pinches, or even the entire shaker. I've tried to cross-check sources, and I've only included information that was frequently reported on in different sources, and I will point out anything that we couldn't confirm. So with that being said, let's delve into the case of the Gold Sock Killer. Jonina Kelpin, known as Dua to her friends and family, was born in Reykjavik, Iceland, where she spent most of her life. While she'd been living in Reykjavik, she actually met a man called Theodore who had been visiting, and the pair quickly fell in love. The two ended up getting married, and in the year 1970, Theodore brought Dua back to the United States with him. A quick side note, Dua is Icelandic for dove, which is how Theodore referred to her, telling anyone who would listen that Dua was the love of his life. Their marriage had been a happy one, and it had been therapeutic for Theodore after his first marriage had ended. His first wife had tragically passed away after a fight with cancer, leading Theodore to explore more of the world after the harsh reminder that life is finite. Dua had been working successfully as a secretary and had acclimated well to Florida and the United States in general. She had a healthy social life and would often go out with her friends. Though, it had been on one of these nights out that Dua would accidentally cross paths with the person who would later become known as the Gold Sock Killer. The day before her death, on Saturday the 14th of July 1973, Dua had spent time at home painting some kitchen cabinets when guests had arrived at their home. These guests had been friends of hers from Iceland, and they had planned to spend a night out on the town together that evening. After having a few drinks together, the group headed out. Dua changed into a halter top shirt and some white slacks before leaving. It had already been late when they had left, and because of this, Theodore had actually gone to bed for a nap prior to the group setting off. At around 8pm that evening, Theodore awoke from his nap to find that Dua had made him dinner, roast with mashed potatoes. Dua had also left a note for him that said, quote, Darling, dinner is in the oven. Don't be afraid. I love you. At around 8.45pm, Theodore received a call from Dua in which he could tell that she'd been drunk, noticing that her speech had been more slurred than usual. Dua told him that she had been in the home of one of their friends, partying and drinking there with them, which wasn't located too far away from the home she shared with Theodore. Theodore then allegedly received another call at about 10pm that evening in which he actually got angry with Dua for still being out, and apparently after which he went downstairs to lock the door before going back to bed, though it must be pointed out that Dua did have a key to the house and like it wasn't like he was locking him out. He was just locking the locking the doors and like closing up, you know, when, before going to bed, doing closing the doors, you know, making sure everything's good for the night. Just before 7am on Sunday, the 15th of July, the remains of Dua were discovered on the lawn of a home about one mile away from the house in which she shared with Theodore. She'd been found wearing only a bra with a gold-coloured sock wrapped around her neck. It was immediately clear that this gold-coloured sock had been used to strangle and kill her. Dua's clothes were found in a pile close to her body, and it was tragically determined that she had been raped prior to being killed. When the authorities knocked on the door of Dua and Theodore's house to inform him, he had still been asleep and hadn't been aware yet that Dua had not returned home. Now, the details of what happened to Dua that night were hazy to say the least, with some accounts being more varied than others. What seems to have been agreed upon most was that Dua had been both heavily drunk and that she had also driven that night. 
Due to the fact that her keys had been found in the door of her house, it had been clear that she had come home that night, though she had put the wrong key into the door which had been left hanging there. Do had two sets of keys, one for her house and one for her car. The keys to the car were located inside of her car that had been abandoned outside of the house where her remains were found. Her car, a white Cadillac, was in a somewhat rough condition. It had apparently been crashed into some shrubbery, which was supported by dents and scratches on the vehicle. Interestingly, her dog Sponge, a white gold cocker spaniel, was found in the backseat of the car unharmed. There had been several sightings and encounters with Dua in the early hours of the morning prior to the discovery of her remains, with several accounts occurring at around 3am. Two different men locally claimed that Dua had come and knocked on their doors asking for help with her car, with one saying that she had been looking for her keys, which had still been in the ignition of her car. Some sources also state that she had been in a corner store or a corner shop at about 3.30am before getting back into her car and driving away. The man who lived in the house where Dewey's remains were found, where they would be found on the lawn, a man called Bud Markwell, was actually questioned in connection to Dewey. However, he told the authorities that he'd never met Dewey before and that he hadn't seen her remains anywhere, nor her clothes when he'd come home earlier that morning, and the authorities quickly dropped him as a suspect. Other leads involving the people who'd come across her, quote, aimlessly wandering, were followed, but those leads too fizzled out quickly. It's important to note that the name of the second woman attacked by the Goldsuck killer was not published, so we shall be referring to her as Rachel in this coverage for the purposes of privacy protection. Now, due to this anonymity, there also was not too much information about her background, besides the fact that she'd been a 26-year-old at the time of the attack and that she had worked as a secretary. The Fort Lauderdale News also referred to her as a, quote, attractive and blonde girl, before going on to detail the attack. On Wednesday the 25th of July 1973, Rachel had come home from a laundromat to her flat at about 9.15pm and had barely gone through the door into her dark apartment when she was ambushed. She had been reaching to turn on a lamp when a gold-coloured sock was wrapped around her neck. Rachel fought with her attacker, managing to kick him repeatedly while screaming. And during this struggle, a coffee table was knocked over, which caused a loud bang. Sounds that could reportedly be heard all the way outside of the apartments and in the halls of the complex. After the table fell in a loud crash, Rachel's attacker panicked and fled. Now, it's assumed that the attacker had been worried that between Rachel's screams and the loud sounds of the struggle, that her neighbours would be able to hear and call for the police. Rachel survived the attack, and when investigators responded to the scene, she described the attacker as being a slim white male with blonde hair. He was estimated to have been around 5 foot 9, with an average build and in his 20s. The subsequent investigation into her case revealed that the attacker had pried open a window in the apartment and climbed through to gain entry. Before Rachel had returned home, the man had seemingly gone through a purse that she had kept stored in her closet. It's unknown if anything was stolen from the purse. Now, due to the accounts that the sock used in the attack had been a golden yellow colour, the police linked the assault with the Dua Kelpin case, suspecting that Rachel's attacker had been the same person that had raped and murdered Dua. The sock itself was inspected in a laboratory and compared to the sock found at the scene of Dua's remains, and according to a detective that was interviewed by the Fort Lauderdale News, quote, both socks appear to be the same colour. Now we want to know if they are in fact a matched pair. Unfortunately, not much information is available about this specific encounter, nor could it be formally tied to the other victims of the cold sock killer. 
Teresa Ann Williams was described by those who knew her as happy and kind, even if they didn't know her that well. She had attended MacArthur High School in Hollywood, Florida, but had dropped out when she was in the 10th grade, a sophomore. Teresa then worked jobs at a car shop called B&M Auto Parks and as a waitress at a few local restaurants, The Lemon Tree and The Good Guy Restaurant. She seemingly had a good relationship with her family, especially her brother and uncle. Her brother, Randy, had been 15 years old at the time of this case and had actually been expecting a baby soon with his partner, Karen. Teresa, who had been 17 years old at the time, had been very excited to become an aunt. And on Friday the 3rd of August 1973, she and her boyfriend, who had been 22 years old, went to the North Miami General Hospital to see her new nephew, David Lee Williams. When Teresa arrived to see him, he had only been in the world for three hours. She spent time at the hospital to support her brother and Karen, with whom she had a good relationship. Karen would later state, quote, Teresa came to visit me and the baby. It was late at night, about 10 o'clock, and the nurse told them to leave. That would be the last time that anybody would see Teresa alive. Teresa would drop off her boyfriend at home at around 11.30pm that evening, telling him that she'd see him later. Though, tragically, she would be found dead days later. On Tuesday the 7th of August 1973, the remains of 17-year-old Teresa were found by some men who'd been hunting for crabs in the marshy areas on the outskirts of Hollywood, Florida. At the time she was discovered, she had been wearing only a shirt and bra and had been in the late stages of decomposition. It's important to note that some sources state that she was found on the 8th of August, with the newspaper stating the 7th and it's unclear which is actually correct, though I wanted to make sure that you were aware of this discrepancy. A pile of clothing had also been found beside Teresa's remains, which were assumed to be hers, and when she was found, there had been a maroon sock tied around her neck that had been used to strangle her. The remains were identified almost immediately as being that of Teresa's, due to two rings that she had been wearing, both of which had been listed on her missing persons reports, that had been filed by her family on Sunday the 5th of August. Teresa's remains were later formally identified through the use of dental records. The first suspect in the investigation had been, naturally, a grown adult boyfriend who had been the last person to have seen her alive. Bear in mind, she was 17 and he was, what, 22? Bit creepy, bit gross. Despite that, her boyfriend was quickly released as Teresa had been found wearing different clothes than the clothes that she'd been wearing when her family and boyfriend had last seen her on that night. This all led authorities to believe that she had made it back to her house and that she had gotten changed before being murdered. Due to the decomposition of her body, it could not be determined if she had been sexually assaulted prior to her death like Dua had been. However, taking the state of undress that she had been found in into consideration, it was presumed by the investigators that sexual assault had likely occurred. Mary Sue Curtis had been a 16-year-old girl living in Hollywood, Florida. She'd been the daughter of Stanley and Alvera Curtis and had an older sister by the name of Debbie Cantwell, who'd been married to Gary Cantwell. Mary Sue also had a younger sister called Melissa, who'd been 11 years old at the time of Mary Sue's murder. According to her family, she had been a loving daughter and sister who had a good relationship with her family, often being described as a good kid who behaved well. Mary Sue had been a student at South Brewer High School in Hollywood, Florida, and had been doing well in school despite juggling her studies with an after-school secretary job at the Heed University, 
which was also located in Hollywood, Florida. On the night of her disappearance, which had been on Tuesday the 28th of August, Mary Sue had been home after her after-school job and had just come back after spending time with her family on the beach. She'd been wearing a bathing suit and a cover-up slash beach robe when she was last seen. At some point, she went with her father to go get some soda and introduced her father to two boys that she knew in the downstairs area of her family home. Her father went back upstairs, which was where everybody else had been, after Mary Sue told him that she'd be back up there in just a minute after she'd washed her hair. And that interaction would be the last time that Mary Sue's family would see her alive. After a few hours had passed, her family grew very, very worried about her whereabouts and decided to go looking for her. They combed the house and the beach where the family had been before, but they saw no sign of her. At about 1.30am on the following day on the 29th, a police officer stopped Mary Sue's father's car to see what he was doing as there had been a lot of robberies in the area and his driving had been suspicious to them. Mary Sue's father explains the situation to the police officer who in turn explains that if Mary Sue hadn't been found by 4am, then he should call it in. The police officer also radioed other officers and asked them to keep an eye out for Mary Sue. Mary Sue's father would remain out searching until 8am the following morning, though at 4am he did proceed to put the call in and reported Mary Sue as missing after not being able to find any trace of her. And tragically, he wouldn't have to wait long before she would be found. At 7am on the 29th of August 1973, the remains of Mary Sue were found nude and submerged underwater only 25 blocks away from her family's home. She had been tied to two large concrete blocks and had been thrown into the intercoastal waterway with a black sock tied around her neck. The remains had been found by a construction worker and Mary Sue's clothes were found in a pile nearby. The investigators quickly identified the remains as being that of Mary Sue's, with the remains undergoing an autopsy that revealed, like with the other victims, she had been sexually assaulted prior to being asphyxiated to death with a sock. According to a newspaper spread published on Thursday the 30th of August 1973, the police had been actively seeking out a security guard from the Diplomat Beach Resort, Hollywood, Florida, which was a resort close to the location where Mary Sue's remains were found. This guard did in fact come forward, and according to him, he did hear a scream and the sound of a motorcycle revving that night, but that he hadn't bothered to report it, as those sounds had, at least to him, been common in that area. Nothing more came from this lead. In the same newspaper spread that had discussed Mary Sue's death, a local psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Raymond Killinger Jr. revealed who he felt the killer could be. He described aspects of the killing that made him have a picture of someone in his head, and although he never said a direct name, he gave a general description of the possible psyche and experiences of this person. Quote, In these cases, there usually was a woman in the man's childhood who had unusually strong control over him. It could be a schoolteacher, an older sister, most commonly, it is the killer's mother. The psychiatrist went on to speculate that the man was, in his mind, killing his mother or other, quote, dominating female from his childhood over and over again during these murders. He then went on to further speculate on what might have caused the choice of a sock as the weapon, but that discussion was incredibly speculative, and honestly, it really doesn't feel appropriate for him to have been publicly speculating in this manner very much grasping at straws. The psychiatrist went on to say that the man could possibly be homosexual because, and I quote, he was, quote, certainly a woman hater, at least. So I honestly wouldn't pay his opinion all too much attention, especially with the homophobic subtext. No other information was released about Mary Sue's case, and just like with the others, it would fall cold. 
Following the murder of Dua Kelpin, the authorities investigated and questioned several known sex offenders in the region. The crime scenes of each attack and body recovery were also heavily monitored, as it was now more known that some offenders would revisit the scenes of the crime in an effort to relive it. In total, throughout the investigations of the three murders and one attack, over 200 individuals were questioned by the police. Some had been sex offenders, some were family members, friends, others who might have had reason to hurt the victims, or even just people, quote, acting suspiciously around the relevant scenes. Of those 200 plus people questioned, about 35 of them underwent polygraph examinations, which all of them passed. Long-time viewers of my channel will know my stance on polygraph examinations, and if you don't, then let me just quickly say that there is a reason that polygraph examinations are inadmissible in a course of law. They are extremely unreliable and pseudoscience, and if they were real and accurate in any way, shape, or form, then the speed of justice would be like that. It would be so quick. It'd be so quick to find out whether someone's lying or not, whether somebody was, was responsible. There'd be no need for such lengthy trials or investigations. I could go on and on about this, but basically, they don't mean anything. They're just used as an intimidation technique, an intimidation tactic by the authorities to hopefully intimidate a witness or a suspect into a confession. That is all they are used for. It's a tool used in obtaining a confession. At the time of the investigation, this passing results meant that those 35 people were taken off of the list of suspects, which is infuriating. Plaster samples of footprints and fingerprints from the scene of the attack on Rachel were taken in the hopes that they could be linked to suspects, though no connection was ultimately made. Now, in 1974, a man called Gary Mattis was arrested for the murder of a woman in Hollywood, Florida, after strangling her to death with a scarf. He, due to the crime and his appearance, was suspected as being the perpetrator of the Goldstock killings and questioned about them, but he was never charged or formally connected to them, and we'll explore this point a little bit later on. And as of today, there are seemingly no ongoing investigations into the Goldstock killings, and all cases related to it are now considered cold. It was very hard to find anywhere where you could send information and tips connected to the killings, so I assume that you would have to contact the Broward County Police, as that was the county that all of the killings occurred in, and their officers were the ones responsible for the investigations. There have been several theories associated with the case of the Goldstock Killer, with some of them being fairly believable and seemingly supported by facts. Though, as always, you must remember that these are theories and are not fact, and, and must be taken with a big pinch of salt. It must be noted that these theories stem from the newspapers, which can be gossipy at the best of times, and that the writers could have embellished the theories in order to make for a better article, which would see better sales, bring more people in, you know, that kind of twisted capitalistic aspect of journalism, which unfortunately does occur even today and even back then. So you've got to keep that in mind. The first theory within this case is simple, that there had been one single man behind the Godsock killings and that horrifyingly, he was never caught. There have been quite a few names thrown around of people suspected, but again, that's just heavy speculation. And most people that support this theory feel that the person behind the Goldstock killings won't ever be identified unless he himself comes forward. Though I hope that advancements in genealogy technologies may help find answers in this case.
The second theory within this case is one that the families of the victims have felt themselves to be plausible. In an interview that we'll touch on in a moment, the parents of Mary Sue discussed the likelihood of two or more men being behind the killings. Theodore, the husband of Dewar, actually claims that the medical examiner who had conducted the autopsy verbally told him that it appeared that more than one man raped his wife that night that the official autopsy only stated that one man had done it. Further, Mary Sue's father shares that he felt it hadn't been possible for only one man to have been behind his daughter's murder either, as it would have likely taken more than one man to handle the concrete blocks that her body was found tied to. Theory 3 is a theory that explored the idea that the killings had actually been a string of people recreating the murder of Dua. Some speculate that the first murder and unsuccessful attack on Rachel were conducted by the same person, but that the murders of Teresa and Mary Sue had been committed by other men. This theory could work also hand in hand in with the multiple killer theory. If there was evidence of one man committing one of the crimes, but other crimes show signs of only having been done by one, then it could be concluded to have been a copycat killing. The copycat theory is one that often appears in serial killer cases, so it's not surprising that it's discussed so much within this case. The fourth theory we're going to be taking a look at today is one that was investigated by the police, one that many feel is a likely resolution to the cases of the Goldstock Killer. We briefly mentioned a man called Gary Mattis earlier on, who had been arrested when he was 19 years old for murder. Let's take a little closer look at this case. His victim had been 32-year-old Anne Ralph Newman, who had been strangled with a scarf in her apartment in Hollywood, Florida, on Tuesday the 6th of February 1974. Anne's remains were discovered later that morning when co-workers from her job at a doctor's office dropped by her house to check up on her. Missing work at the Miloff Permsley Furnace and Silver Professionals Associates which is a really big, lengthy company name, by the way, had not been something normal for her, and her co-workers were worried from the start. When they found her, they immediately contacted the police. The investigators determined that she'd been killed between 7.30 and 8.30 a.m. based on the fact that her morning newspaper had been brought in before she was killed. Further details on the investigation are sparse, but we know it took at least six weeks for the investigators to get to the point of taking Gary Matus to trial. Gary's first trial actually ended up in a mistrial on the 26th of May 1974 due to the jurors not being able to come to a conclusion. On Wednesday the 26th of June 74, the trial against Gary was turned over to a jury once again. Though this time, Gary was found guilty and he remains in prison to this day. Gary is the very man that many suspect could be the Goldsock killer. The theory goes that Gary, who lived in the county of all three of the confirmed Goldsock killer crimes at the time, used his age to his advantage. Many think since he was young that he'd come across as non-threatening to the victims and why the Goldsock killer might have turned to younger victims. He's never officially been linked to the crimes. It should also be noted that there are several claims that Gary did not commit the murder of Anne Newman, that the state pushed it onto him and forged evidence. However, that is outside the scope of today's video. The fifth theory, Theory 5, in this case, suggests that the Godsuck killer laid low for a little while before killing again, but this time with a different M.O. There's been some speculation that the Godsuck killer went on to become the flat tire murderer, 
was active in 1975 and 1976, just south of where the Goldstock killings occurred. The flat tire murderer also attacked and sexually assaulted women who were alone and or more vulnerable, but stabbed them rather than strangled them. Though such a shift in MO makes it hard for a lot of people to link the two killers together. Others disagree and feel that it's plausible, but there's very little to back this theory. The final theory we'll be discussing in today's video in this case is that there was no Goldstock killer. Those who subscribe to this idea believe that these were random, similar killings that were lumped together under the name of a serial killer due to serial killers being a quote, hot topic at that time. As we discussed at the start of the video, several big name serial killers were active during this year, so there were hundreds of murders in the news that were regularly being linked to serial killers. Some people speculate that because of this, several killings that happened to have similarities were lumped together in this period because of the attention on serial killing. They speculate that it would have been, quote, good for the newspapers if there was a serial killer around to keep the sales high. On Wednesday the 26th of September 1973, the Fort Lauderdale newspaper ran a story highlighting the aftermath of the murders. The story covered an interview of Theodore Kelpin and Stanley Curtis, Dewey's husband and Mary Sue's father, respectively. This interview sat both of the men down, both of whom had met up in the Curtis family apartment to share their grief with each other. They both spoke and shared stories of their loved ones who'd been taken from them way too soon. Theodore said, quote, I called her Dewey, that's Icelandic for dove. He went on to share that he'd lost his first wife to cancer after 37 years of marriage, and he had met Dua in Iceland. He said he fell in love at first sight. He continued saying, quote, She went back to Iceland once on a vacation. I was so damn lonesome for her. I called her long distance. You know what she said? She said, I'll never leave you alone again. That's the kind of girl she was. Theodore shared his frustration with the investigation, feeling that the police hadn't done enough. Quote, What are the police doing? Are they just sitting on their butts? Where the hell is the man who killed my wife, my doer? Mary Sue's mother, Vera, joined the conversation, saying to Theodore, quote, The day your wife was killed, Mary Sue and I were driving home from shopping. We heard the news on the car radio. We were both shocked. I said to her, See, honey, anything can happen in a strange place. But she laughed and said, Oh, mother, you're always worrying. Stanley finally joined in, saying, quote, We never think it can happen to us, do we? It's always the other guy's family. He then asked Theodore, quote, Do you think the same man committed all these murders? Do you think the same man killed my Mary Sue, who killed your wife? Theodore said he did, and even believed that multiple men were to blame, citing the medical examiner who'd verbally told Theodore that it appeared two men had raped her, not just one. However, as we know, this apparently hadn't been put in the autopsy report. Stanley said that he agreed with that idea as he felt it would have taken two men to move and tie Mary Sue to the concrete blocks. In a different newspaper spread, Mary Sue's sister Debbie said, quote, if they'd legalized prostitution and make rape a capital offense, they'd cut down on this. What the hell is more corrupt than murder? On Thursday the 9th of August 1973, a spread in the Fort Lauderdale News covered Teresa's murder. It begins with a heartbreaking point, quote, One of the last people to come into contact with Teresa Ann Williams before she was slain will never remember her. Her nephew, David Lee Williams, was only about three hours old when Teresa stopped to get a first happy look at her only brother's son. Those who knew her described her as being smiley and friendly to those who she came across. Her uncle, Carl Wise, claims that this might have been what had led to her death. He said in the spread, quote, She trusted everybody. 
She was that kind of girl. There's somebody she shouldn't have trusted. The case of the Goldstock Killer is one that baffles investigators to this day, and I sincerely hope that advances in DNA genealogy technology may one day find the closure that the family and friends of the victims so desperately need and deserve. Let me know down in the comment section below which theory in this case makes the most sense to you, or if you have any other theories or ideas, but please ensure to remain respectful and remember that these are just theories and are not facts and they shouldn't be taken as such. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. Be sure to subscribe to my channel to get a brand new true crime episode every Sunday at 9pm UK time. Hit that subscribe button, click that little bell icon, hit the like button, all that good stuff. You can also now find all of my videos in podcast forms. So if you're the kind of person that goes about your day or is journeying to work, and you want to just listen to the cases, you can just search True Crime with Joshua Miles. You'll be able to find um, my entire backlog of True Crime cases to listen to if you wanted to. Um, and every future video and case that comes out is being posted there too automatically. Uh, so yeah, definitely check that out. And um, for those of you who prefer just to have a audio experience, um, because of that new podcast thing, I will be trying to make sure that my videos uh, explain what's being shown on screen if things are being shown on screen, if that makes sense. Uh, as per usual, you can find the research for this case. Actually, you, you probably can't. You can find my write-up for this case because the research was done prior to when I implemented the new researching thing where I was publishing all my research. So you can find the research doc and the script down below um, if you wanted to take a look at that in more detail. We should be back. I should have caught with my whole backlog very soon and should be publishing all the comprehensive research for future videos going forward very soon. Um, and with all that being said, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for giving uh, these victims' stories a moment of your attention. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.